This morning will be our final Sunday in the first part of Mark chapter 7. It's on page 712 if you're using the Pew Bibles. As I mentioned last week, this is the longest single conflict section in Mark's gospel between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. This conflict has been simmering since chapter 3, and the intentions of those leaders became known in that chapter that they wanted to get rid of Jesus, that they couldn't agree with him, that they thought he was the problem. And this chapter in Mark 7 is a really important chapter for us to understand why. Why was Jesus so offensive to them? And why did he disagree with them so much? What was wrong with what uh, they have, uh, with their approach and what they have done? So, as we've seen, there are three major issues in the passage. First, as Pastor Steve preached about a couple weeks ago, Jesus is teaching that the Word of God. is the proper foundation for the life of the Christian. That the word of God trumps all human uh, traditions, that the word is what we are to submit to. And second, last week we considered how the approach of the religious leaders to holiness and purity was tragically flawed. That they had built their lives on this maintaining of external appearances, the rituals that made them look and feel holy and pious were the things that they had focused on. And so Jesus is challenging them to see that these external appearances are not what God thinks is most important. And that they've lost the heart of God's law as as it's described in the Old Testament. And they've moved away from what God intends with their focus on these outward appearances and religious rituals. Finally today... We'll consider how the Pharisees' approach to God's law is actually selfish and self-serving. And again, they've moved away from God's gracious intention in giving the Old Testament law. And they've moved to reorient it such that they use God's law for their own selfish purposes and their own gain. Human traditions have undercut the purpose of the law. And Jesus won't let that stand. And Jesus will challenge that uh, in the religious leaders of his day. So read with me from Mark 7, uh, again on page 712 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, This is the word of God. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give Uh, their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, 
that is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. And thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Last week I posed a question to us, are we a good church? And my intention was not for us to say yes or for us to say no. My intention was to point out that this is the wrong question to ask. We're a church. And that means that we are, at the same time, a broken human organization with deep flaws and struggles that is, at the same time, the heir and beneficiary of unbelievable, gracious promises from God. And we understand this tension as individual believers. We understand that we're simultaneously saints and sinners. The Bible teaches us that. We also feel that tension as a church. We see our flaws, and we also read that Jesus has promised to build his church and purify his church. But because of our ongoing struggles and flaws, sometimes we are tempted to feel like not to wait on Jesus to purify us, but to try to present an image that is more pure than is actually the case, which puts us in the role of the Pharisee, the one who tries to look good externally and yet uh, not uh, repenting of the brokenness that's inside. So that's what we want, right? We want to look good. We want our church to be a good one. We want to be, or at least we want to appear to be, better than the world around us, or those people who believe in other religions, or the other churches that are out there. And I think, as I have reflected on this, I think it connects in a way with our American consumer mentality. I don't want to be associated with a bad church. I want to pick a winner, right? I mean, after all, I pick the right kind of grocery stores, and I get the kind of car that fits me, and I go to the clothing stores that make me feel good about what I wear and make me, you know, feel good about my appearance, and I hang out with friends that are like me, and uh, whatever it is, we're tempted, that's the American way that we live, and we're tempted to maintain appearances and to look good externally. And so that causes us sometimes to be defensive when we're criticized rather than repentant. And in the process, we often, we, we can lose focus on our real condition, a real condition which is utter dependence on God and his mercy that's offered to us in the gospel. In this passage, it's easy for us, and we'll explore them, we'll, it's easy to see the, the flaws of the Pharisee. But I hope that God will continue to show us in his mercy and his kindness, because he loves us, that he'll show us how we can be like them and how we can then turn away from that destructive path. And so we'll look now through uh, to understand our passage to see more clearly what's going on and then think about how we can apply it. Last week we looked at the first part of the passage about these ritual washing practices that the Pharisees were doing that had become widespread traditions of the time. Those are described in verses 1 through 5. The washing was done for religious reasons, not for, you know, hygienic ones. Uh, And the earliest form of it probably came, you know, it has its roots in the Old Testament. Exodus 30 describes the rules that would be, uh, that the priests would follow to wash in order to 
before they would do their sacrifices or enter the tabernacle. But by the time of Jesus, what was originally commanded for the priests had become something of a standard practice and a marker for holiness for everyone who wanted to be a pious person. And so what had been the law for a few, for a specific purpose, had become the law for everyone, but far beyond the original commandments. Additional laws and interpretations and cases had to be spelled out over the centuries, and so boundaries were built around boundaries and laws around laws to define with increasing precision what was clean and unclean and how many times you had to wash and how you had to do it and all of these rules and regulations. And so the Pharisees are criticizing Jesus because his disciples aren't doing all of those traditions. But Jesus was to blame. This is another way that they can point out what a bad person he was, what a bad teacher he was, what a bad rabbi he was. And so Jesus' response is really interesting. We see it at the beginning of verse 6. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. Jesus doesn't take the bait and argue about the merits of ritual washing. Rather, he goes straight to the issue. And I think it's worth mentioning that Jesus calls them hypocrites. And in the New Testament times, and you may have heard this before, a hypocrite was actually the word for an actor, someone who played the role in a theater. So a hypocrite did things like putting on a mask, pretending to be someone else, acting in a way that was removed, deliberately removed from who they really were. And so this rich meaning of the Greek world has come into our English word for hypocrite. We understand what a hypocrite is. A hypocrite must be someone else. It was their job to play a part without any connection to internal reality. And so, needless to say, Jesus is not flattering the religious leaders of his day. This would have been deeply offensive to them to be called a hypocrite on a number of different levels. And so then he turns his attention to this prophecy that's in Isaiah 29. As it is written, Jesus said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. One thing for us to keep in mind, of course, when we see an Old Testament quotation in the New Testament is that it's helpful to look back at the Old Testament in context because New Testament writers wouldn't necessarily have written out all of the verses, but they would have expected their readers to be familiar with the whole uh, passage. So it's important for us to look at what Isaiah 29 is actually about, and it's about God's judgment that's coming upon his people. There's a crisis coming. There's a terrible tragedy that's in store for the southern kingdom Uh, of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. And Isaiah keeps talking about this, but the people aren't listening. They're oblivious. They aren't interested in repenting. The leaders are worried about making alliances with Egypt and other nations so that they, you know, working out these political schemes so that they won't be conquered by the Assyrians. Rather than calling out to the Lord. And so in this passage, the people are described as blind and staggering, that they're dull and sleepy. It's like they're in a coma. They're unresponsive to God's prophet, according to those verses, verses 9 and 10 in Isaiah 29. And in verse 14, there in Isaiah 29, 
the one after the verse that Jesus quotes, there's a great promise of God's deliverance. I'll read it to you. So this is 13 and 14. The Lord says, These people come near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. So despite the state of their hearts, God says, I'm going to do something amazing and wonderful among them. Now, it won't be in accord with their expectations or their plans or their wisdom or their intelligence. Those things will be overthrown by what I do, says the Lord. So the prophet doesn't leave them without hope. He says that God is going to do something, but he's going to do something different than they might have imagined. And how would we hear that on this side of the cross? A Messiah that comes who is unexpected, who doesn't meet political expectations, who suffers as a servant. That's not what they had in mind, right? But this is the kind of thing that God is doing. The point of Isaiah 29, 13, the verse that Jesus quotes, is the problem of religious play acting. The people are coming close to God with their words, but their hearts are far away from him. They're drawing near, but not really. Their rules are human ones, not God's. One commentator said it like this. God notes in, the, in this passage in Isaiah how religion remains, but reality has perished. The nemesis of religion without a foundation in the revealed word of God. So Isaiah is saying something has gone terribly wrong. And we see it in the rest of the book of Isaiah. The people haven't noticed. The people haven't responded with repentance. So this picture of this blind, sleepy, religious people in Isaiah's day is what Jesus is saying. This is who you are, Pharisees and scribes. You are blind, sleepy, religious people. And judgment is coming on you as it came on the nation 600 years before. It's the same kind of hypocrisy. It's the same kind of false worship. So Jesus summarizes the problem back in verse 8 in Mark 7. You have let go of the commandments of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. These are opposites, right? They're clinging to traditions and they're letting go of God's commandments. It's the same rhetoric as drawing near but being far away. What they should hold loosely, they've clung to. What they should cling to, they've let go of. In the process of thinking they're drawing near, they're moving away. The prophet is, and, and Jesus is turning these words so that they will see what, they're thi- what they think is happening. The, the, it's not happening. It's the opposite. It's the reverse. So Jesus, in order to explain this, Jesus gives this very concrete example from their law of how they've moved away from the heart of God and replaced a relationship with him with rules of men. Verse 9. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say, 
that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is, a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. So Mark describes in verses 11 and 12 this practice of korban, which seems to have been a common one at the time. Mark gives us the, uh, the, the Semitic word that's actually transliterated into Greek. It's not a Greek word. It's a word that comes from the Hebrew Bible. And it, the same root is found in a whole host of Semitic languages in Hebrew, in Aramaic, in Syriac, in Arabic. It's a very common word. And the meaning of the verb generally is to draw near. So to draw near to God means that you're bringing a gift. It means that you're making an offering. In Syriac, one of the forms of drawing near means uh, to draw near as in battle, to go to war against. And so as a Hebrew noun, then its basic meaning is an offering or a gift, what you bring as you draw near to God. And Mark is explaining this to his Gentile audience. In the Old Testament, thus, this korban, the uh, Hebrew word, was a gift. It was an offering. It was the thing that was consecrated to God through sacrifice or dedication. But by the time of Jesus, the word had gained a different meaning as well. And according to some commentators, it had begun to be used in formulas for making vows when something is to take on the character of a sacrificial gift to God, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there also has to be an actual offering in sacrifice. So we can see how the, the meaning of the word changed from describing the sacrifice, as in Leviticus, to describing a way to, um, take, uh, to set something aside by using a holy oath or a vow uh, for a particular purpose. So you can declare something in Jesus' day as korban. That is, by making the vow of devoting this gift to God. For the Pharisees of Jesus' day, this practice uh, worked something like what we might call deferred giving. A person could vow, they could dedicate, they could korban their property to God so that when they died, it would pass into the temple treasury. So they're giving their inheritance to uh, God when they died. Until that time, until they die, you retain control over the property and you can use it for your personal use. But since it's been vowed to God, it can't be given to anyone else. So a man cannot support his parents in their old age with the goods that have been given to God because this korban vow vow is binding. And what is declared before God is more important than the needs of one's parents because it's, you have to keep your vows to God, as number 32 tells us. So in verse 10, Jesus reminds them of the moral law from the Ten Commandments and from the Covenant Code of Exodus 21. As part of the moral ethic that God has established, each person is to honor their parents, which involves a whole range, right, of caring for them, supporting them, helping them, giving them respect. Um, these things are close to the heart of God. And so the interesting and twisted thing about this Korban practice is that they've used what looks like generosity towards God to actually prevent themselves from obeying God's moral law. 
So a man can say, I've given everything to God. All that I have is his. What is more noble and pious than that? I haven't just given 10%, right? I've given 100%. But I have to still live. And so I'll control my funds in this way for the rest of my life. But that means I can't support my parents. I have to put God first. And I made this vow to him. And I can't break it. Right? So their interpretation of God's law and their traditions around it are set against God's actual law. Under the pretense of giving everything to God, they kept everything to themselves. And they've sinned gravely against their parents. So it's really clever, and it's really selfish. To remove the force of God's law, honor your father and your mother, no longer actually applies to me. With this twisted kind of logic, right? Those who have taken this vow invoke God's blessing in order to sin against their parents. So Jesus says, in summary, verse 13, right? Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And you do many things like that. You've nullified, you've abrogated, you've invalidated the commandment of God based on these and other practices. And some of them we encounter elsewhere in the Gospels, right? (coughs) Excuse me. About healing on the Sabbath. And things like that. Where Jesus is strong to say, wait a minute. You've misused God's law. And your interpretation of it actually does the opposite of what God intended for his law. And what's especially interesting about these examples, right, is that the Pharisees are simply following faithfully their traditions. They haven't invented all of these rules in the generation of Jesus growing up. These are passed down to them as part of a great body of knowledge of what it means to be a righteous person. And so that's why it's really difficult for them to hear what Jesus is actually saying. That Jesus is saying, your great religious tradition, the thing that you're building your life upon, is wrong. It's doing the opposite of what you think you're actually accomplishing. It's easy for us, in hindsight and from 2,000 years distance, to see this. Right? We can see how the Pharisees have done this. But the passage isn't here to show us what bad guys the Pharisees were. Right? We share a fallen condition with them. And it may be more difficult for us to see, but how can we be guilty of similar things? How can we understand this text and apply it to our lives and see what Jesus' message is for us today? First, I want to start with this idea of tradition. And the church has a love-hate relationship with tradition, don't we? Traditions can be helpful We know that we're standing on the shoulders of giants who've gone before us in the worship of Jesus. And not just giants, ordinary people, everyday people. And we benefit so much from reading the thoughts of men and women who have examined the Bible, particularly in other places and in other cultures, and have passed down what they've learned, and have passed down their histories of what God has done. And we can appreciate so much of our church culture, of our liturgies and our hymns and our commentaries and our art and our architecture and all of the things that go with being a part of a tradition. 
those things can help support our faith. They can encourage us in our beliefs. As we share experiences and we're, as we're heirs of, of these great things that God has done through history, through his people. But, right, we knew that was coming, right? We can also have blind spots about our traditions and be tempted to focus more on the tradition than the more important issues of the Christian life. And churches actually are notoriously hung up on tradition, aren't we? We have a difficult time with change. And throughout history, the church has often been the bastion of traditional practices and the last institution to notice how a culture has changed around us. And then to reconsider what it means to fulfill our God-given mission within a new cultural context. Our love of tradition can be a weakness and a flaw. I read an article this week in which the author was expressing how fed up he was with what he called the Christian myth of America's moral decay. Now, I was certainly not in agreement with everything in the article, uh, but it definitely got me thinking and what he was doing is he was attacking this widely held notion that you hear sometimes in our circles that America is plummeting into a moral abyss. And that the implication of that is that the glory days of the American church are in the past. Right? It used to be so much... Uh, the, the church used to be so much more prominent. The, used, the church used to be so much more influential. The church used to have... This, this place. And people would say, we've lost that. Now, there's something of a fact there, but he's claiming, he's writing this as a Christian, not as a critic. And he included these lines. We're all flying and falling simultaneously, gaining and losing ground, and doing it again and again. I reject the myth of our downward spiral Because I know how hard I and so many others are working to get this life right and to love well. I don't believe that I'm in a personal moral decay. And I imagine the same is true for you, which is the point. There have always been people who will do horrible, despicable things, and there still are. There have always been people who live with unthinkable kindness, and this is still true. And almost always... They are the very same people. So what he's saying, right, is that our Christian history and our Christian present is a mixed bag. And so is our Christian tradition. And so we need to scrutinize our traditions in order to keep and reject according to the yardstick of God's word. The Pharisees had reversed the clinging and the loosing. They held tightly and blindly to the lesser things and they let go of the most important things. This moral decay narrative focuses on on how our society has rejected the word of God, which is really a bad thing. Some historians would argue that our society has always rejected the word of God. It was just less obvious before this, right? That's part of his argument. That's a bad thing. But I think part of what alarms us is that our culture no longer reflects our traditions. Which, if these traditions are sort of on the side, if these traditions aren't really central to the gospel, 
then that may not be such a bad thing. Because they're not really rejecting the gospel, they're rejecting churchiness, religiosity, um, you know, an American uh, past that they aren't into anymore, right? So the traditions aren't the issue the gospel is. And so God doesn't call us to defend tradition for the sake of tradition, right? God calls us to be engaged in the work of the gospel. And so part of my issue with this, you know, in thinking about this issue, about this moral decay narrative, is that it actually tempts me towards despair and not towards faith. We're people of faith. Not faith in the influence of the American church and our culture. Not faith in the visible prominence or the viability of our traditions or how much people say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays, right? That's traditional. Like, they've lost... (laughs) Did that person really mean Merry Christmas 20 years ago? I mean, were they really a Christian celebrating Christmas? Or were they saying Happy Holidays and just saying Merry Christmas because everyone said Merry Christmas, right? And that's an example of where someone, where our society has rejected our tradition, but it never embraced the meaning of Christmas in the first place. So my concern is not that we lose faith in our, is not that our faith is in our traditions, but our faith is in the really, really big promises that God gives to his church. And faith demands that we seek and find and celebrate beauty and redemption and light in the church. And that we do that all the more if the darkness seems darker around us. The world needs to see our hope in Christ more brightly. They don't need to see us living with contempt for the present or fear of the future while we're pining away for the past. And that's the picture of Isaiah, right? Even though your hearts are far away from me, God says, I'm going to do something amazing in your midst. And that promise is still there, right? In the promises that God has given to the church, God has said, I'm doing something amazing in your midst. And you may not even be able to see it. And you may not be able to measure it demographically. But I'm doing something. I'm not abandoning you. Your faith isn't connected to the traditions in our culture, in our church. I read another article this week about this woman who was a reporter who was with Christians in Iraq and others who were being persecuted Uh, and driven out of their homelands and their ancestral lands and all of that, and terrible things, really terrible things. And she said the same thing, that when the darkness is darkest, the light shines the the brightest. And the lives of these Christians holding on to their faith in their homeland that they've had there for 1,700 years is an amazing picture of God sustaining church and yet in the process some of their tradition is being lost their their manuscripts are being lost their churches are being you know some of those things are being lost and that's tragic 
But that doesn't mean that they've lost the gospel. And so I think that passage, this passage kind of points this out to us, doesn't it? And related to this, sort of the flip side of it, is the challenge in this passage that tradition can really be a stumbling block to the church. That though very different in application, right, we can fight for traditions and preferences like Pharisees, breaking the moral laws of God in order to uphold the lesser traditions. The greatest commandment is to love God and to love our neighbor. And this is a great challenge when we also love our traditions and we love our traditional practices. There are many issues of preference and tradition in the church, in our church, in all churches, in all denominations, right, about food and about worship and about Sunday school and about preaching style and about music and about small groups and about the way that we do ministry and what time the service begins and all of those things can have purpose and meaning and they can be rooted in the gospel but they have to be not just rooted in our traditions and that's what Jesus is challenging the Pharisees with and I think that's the challenge for us this morning The challenge is to hold our preferences and our traditions with a greater kind of love. And and that's Jesus' challenge, to give ourselves to that kind of love and to give ourselves to that kind of commitment to the gospel in the face of maybe what seems like the world going the wrong direction, in the face of our, our traditions being challenged. And so in these two services, I hope that we will reflect more deeply in these past two sermons, I'm sorry, on the error of the Pharisees and how we don't want to be like them and how we need to ask God to, in his mercy and his grace, make us not like them and repent of those ways in which we're tempted to hold on to the wrong things. Let's hold on to the gospel, uh, the message of Christ, the one who gave up his life for us, forgive all of our sins and to be with his people forever he's the one who makes great promises for his church amen let's pray with me father we are thankful that we can see your hand at work in history and we do praise you for that and we praise you that you have established a church here because of the faithful witness of men and women throughout the centuries and the millennia and yet god we ask that you would do a work in us as well, to free us from what might hinder us, even in our own tradition, even in our own practice, even in our own preference. Free us from what might hinder us from more fully and completely devoting ourselves to you. God, in, in places where we have conflict about these things, in places where we, where we struggle to let go, we pray that you would give us your grace and uh, continue to root these things and your gospel more deeply into our hearts this week. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.